tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads in over 150 countries and your number one source for after-show entertainment. TV, the destination for TV superfans, producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows, interviewing celebrities and showrunners, and bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, everyone on the internet, and welcome back to the Fargo Season 2 After Show. Real quick, follow AfterBuzz TV, all of our social media, at AfterBuzz TV. I am Lex Michael, and I am here with... Dave Child. You can follow me at, at Mr. Dave Child on Twitter and basically everywhere else, and DaveChild.com. Yeah. So, Dave, Dave, this show... Oh, boy. ...is really good. Oh, yes. This show is so stupendously good. It's great. Uh, we are, are people watching the show? Because people should watch the show. It is. I, I tweeted out today, because I've been watching more or less since the season started, but I am right. consistently floored at how tremendous it is. Oh, it keeps getting better, too. It's, it's so good. And in these past two episodes... Every expectation that I had for where it was going in the immediate future, every one of them was wonderfully subverted. Right. And we're going to get into all of that. We are finally, tonight, caught up. So yeah. going forward, we're only going to be covering one episode until the end of the season as they air. And we're already now, we're, we're in the back half. Yeah, we're past the halfway point. So, it's- so tonight, it's episodes five and six, and that's Gift of the Magi and rhinoceros mm-hmm. really quickly since we've talked uh, about what the significance of the episode titles are as best we were able to right. discover such significance what were you able to find if anything about the possible uh, cultural significance of these two titles well okay i'm glad you asked uh gift of the magi is like a o henry story it's a famous one it's not to be turned... confused with Ohanzi. Yeah, Ohanzi. Mm-hmm. Ohanzi. But it's uh it's kind of turned into to cliche now if like different shows have used it. It's the it's a story about two married couples uh, about a married couple that give each other a gift on Christmas. They're both very poor and one of them and the only prized possessions they have is like the wife has long hair and the father and the uh, uh, husband has a pocket watch. So the husband gives the wife uh, like combs, beautiful combs, and has to sell the pocket watch in order to do that. And the wife gives the husband like a clasp for the pocket watch, but has to sell her hair in order to get it. So they both realize their their gifts are meaningless. But they're important because it shows the affection that's there. Right. So that's basically what happens with the Blomquist in this yes, episode. Yes, we do. We see elements of that when we see Peggy decide pretty spontaneously yeah. and impulsively to sell the car to get some money for Ed to buy the butcher shop. But yeah. it is for not because, spoilers for a show that presumably all you guys have already seen, there is no more butcher shop. No, there's no more butcher shop. And that's the big thing. And also, uh, it's important to note that Ed comes back to the house and says, hey, we should hit the road. We should leave the town. Because that's his little gift of the Magi. That's his little like moment of letting Peggy, giving Peggy the chance to actually leave 
the town, which he's he's like so firmly put roots in. Sure. So that's that's that, that's where I think the gift of the magi comes in with this episode. Yes. Now rhinoceros is uh, a Nesco. It's that I believe the only the only point of reference I could find for it was the Eugene Ionesco play. Yeah, Ionesco play, which is uh, a famous absurdist play. Now I think. The fact that it's absurdist is almost more important than what actually happens in the play. Because it's a play about, it's a small French town where mm-hmm. the residents gradually turn into rhinoceros. Rhinoceri? Yeah. I want to say rhinoceros. Rhinoceroses? I think it's rhinoceri. Rhinoceros. I'm going to say rhinoceri. I like rhinoceros. Let's say rhinoceri. So they become rhinoceri slowly, except for one guy who's first, by the way, uh, chastised for being kind of a drunk, uh, uh, like kind of someone who's who's behind everyone, kind of dumb. And then he becomes the only one who's sensible while everyone else conforms to becoming a rhinoceros. Rhinoceri. Uh, and... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It, it's supposed to be based off of like uh, the spread of communism and also the spread of Nazism and and all that stuff. Kind of people kind of becoming part of a group sure. without actually realizing that they're becoming part of a group or realizing what monsters they're becoming. Um, so I was trying to figure out like. That is there a little bit in the show. Well, when I when I first looked up the the this play or to refresh my memory about right. what the what the thematic tie might be, there is if at the end of the play this one guy who does not turn into a rhinoceros at the end of the play tries to turn into a rhinoceros and can't even right. when he wants to. So I started thinking, well, who is who is that uh, analog on the show? Who who aligns most closely with that? And at first, I'm thinking maybe maybe Lou, who is a constant, I, the I, same I, the same guy regardless of the upheaval going on around it. But then I went, I don't think it's Lou. Could be Carl. I think it's Carl. I Weathers. think it could be Carl because that's this was kind of Carl's big episode, yes. which I'm really happy that they used Nick Offerman so well because I was a little worried he was becoming just a background player, a guy that would come in and say like something colorful and then sure. leave. And he's great in that capacity, and it was always fun to see him drift in and out of the story. But you get this right. far into the season, and you start to ask yourself, well, what's what's he there for? Right, and he is the only one in the episode that uh, that fights against this feeling of of uh, violence that comes. Out. So everyone's becoming kind of a monster in a way. Everyone's becoming kind of a rhinoceros. As the the um, the Reinhold, not Reinholds, Gerhards. Yes. The Gerhards are trying to like having their own assault on Precinct Thirteen, which I want to get to absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know, and the cops are kind of gearing up, I think, to fight back. And so, and he's the one that was actually able to to diminish the whole thing by actually being level headed and. And talking things out, which is surprising to his character, which is, you know, he was like kind of the town drunk and uh, blowhard, and he's actually able to have this really gripping moment, really wonderful moment. So I think he might be the the one tie. That would be my assumption. And also Ed. I think Ed is also a big thing, too, because he's seeing everyone around him. He's just trying to maintain, like his humanity while everything around him is going crazy. Sure. And I think it's the absurdity is what it's really nodding to because it's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, um, 
nods to the philosophy of absurdism. Like uh, when Noreen, for instance, says, what's the point of anything? We're all going to die anyways. Right. That sounds depressing, but it's actually where all absurdism comes from. Absurdism, you think it comes from just people like being like, oh, I think we should be silly. I think we should have fun. We should enjoy life. It actually comes from the opposite, uh, actually the philosophy at least, and, and where a lot of the literature of absurdism comes from. It's from people saying, hey, it doesn't matter. We're all going to die. Let's just be fucking weird. Sure. Let's just, let's just get weirded out. Sure. So, and, yeah. Oh, there's another, uh, just talking real quickly to wrap up the discussion of titles of the episodes, They act, there's a scene in the, I believe it's in the interrogation room once Ed is at the police station between Lou and Ed, where Ed directly references the myth of Sisyphus. Yes. Of rolling the boulder up the hill in this fruitless effort to try and make progress where there mm-hmm. is no progress to be made. Yeah, but there is a there is a important character point that Ed makes where he doesn't say, so what's the point of it all? Why am I doing this? What he says is like, so what I'm trying to say is no matter what, I'm going to keep doing what I have to do. Yep. Which is like, that's... That's the philosophy of the myth of syphilis. Uh, syphilis. That's <laughs> the, myth the of prophecy syphilis. of syphilis. And you know that's and and it shows where his character is rather than just giving up on that rock and letting it fall back. So. Absolutely. So let's circle back around because there's mm-hmm. a lot that happened in we these cover. two episodes. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, at Reagan, the beginning right? of episode five, the very first thing we get is Ronald Reagan. Yeah, Bruce Campbell, Ash. We get uh, Ash's Ronald Reagan, which I have to say, I was surprised at how good he was. Oh, yeah. Because I thought he was going to be, when I heard he was going to be Reagan, or when I like kind of figured out he was going to be Reagan, I thought he was, and I thought it was going to be campy. I thought sure. it was going like to be. Like a caricature. Yeah, a caricature. And he was just like spot on. Yeah. He was somewhere in between being very Bruce Campbell-y and also being a little bit Reagan-y. And he just kind of. They did that side of Reagan of the movie star. Yes. And Bruce Campbell's perfect for that because he looks like a movie star. He has that looks, but he's also able to be goofy. Yes. So. And he's – he's the first moment you see him, he's being very presidential and he's talking. He's addressing the crowd. And right. he's spinning this wonderful, wonderful rhetoric about all these things. We're going to – the the pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make progress and deal with the problems that exist and move forward to a better, brighter tomorrow. And there's an amazing, amazing moment in the bathroom right after right. this between Lou and Reagan where Lou asks him point blank, well, how are we going to do this? And he just, just looks at him and nods and walks away. Walks off. away. That's perfect. And you also have uh, Lou being like telling him a real time war story. Yeah. And a real time. And him responding with, well, that reminds me of when I was in a war movie. Right. And I think, I think the point of Reagan in this was kind of, we talked about this in uh, the last episode, I think, or one of the previous episodes, where Reagan is the whole idea for Waiting for Dutch, which is the first episode, yes. what the first episode was called, is that uh, Reagan is symbolizing a hero that everyone wants to come to clean everything up, but he's not really, he doesn't really exist. Sure. He doesn't really, there is no hero that will come and be able to which actually like Reagan even says in his little on the hill speech he even says like we're not we're not waiting for like someone to come in a, a, on a white horse but everyone is everyone is waiting for Reagan to come in be able to say something to Lou to make everything right to be able to just like prove that he's the hero 
And it shows the bathroom scene is perfect because it shows that he just can't do it. Right. He's not he's not the perfect hero. He's he's just a guy and more yeah. than more than a leader, more than a hero, he is he's every bit still for better and for worse the matinee idol Reagan. Right. That he was and that's what he is, that's what he knows to be. So when confronted with this very direct but really what are we gonna do? Right. He's got nothing. Also, by the way, that state was one of the only states that did not vote for Reagan. And uh, he also didn't win that state again in his re-election. So I thought that was kind of perfect. <laughs> um, meanwhile, a lot of things are happening uh, on the Gearheart side of the equation. Yeah. Um, before we get into this this battle in the snow that I was not predicting we would see so soon, oh, man. I just want to pause uh, to uh, point out, uh, maybe redundantly, uh, Dodd's a jerk. Yeah, Dodd's a big dummy head. That's, he's, he's a big jerk. Um, so he spins this lie to uh-huh. Floyd that he essentially manipulates Hanzi into corroborating about what actually happened to Rye. They now know, Hanzi having found the belt buckle, they know that it was the Blumquists. Yeah. One or the other, they assume it was Ed because Ed's the man and that's how they think. Yeah. And, and that's where the trail ends. And so Dodd's story is that it's not, he's not. A butcher that's responsible. He is a hitman from Kansas City called the butcher. The butcher, yeah. Which he just—he's so hungry for war. He's just because he knows that's where he has the power. Right. That's where he's able to be because he's just this um, strong man and he's just this masculine dick. Yeah, he's just able <laughs> to be. He's a masculine dick. dick. He's just—that's—that's that's all he can do is just really just attack. And and he's only can only serve in the time of war, so he wants it to be a war as much as possible. It's it's his like grab for the the throne, right? And of course now it it's a knife in Floyd's heart, hearing right. that this this was done to my boy, and this of course has the direct effect of escalating the war with Kansas City, and that I, again I was surprised. Fairly early in the episode, yeah, we get this big shootout between Kansas City and Gearheart forces. Yeah, in which we, we lose, we lose Lou, we lose uh, of the Kansas City group. The isn't that the guy's name? Not Lou, um, uh, Joe, Joe, Joe Bulo, Joe. Yeah, we lose Who, Joe. Who's their Who's their figurehead for all intents and purposes, or at least as far as presumably there's a higher. Level right. that he he reports up to, but as far as we've seen so far, he's been the top guy from yeah, Kansas City. It's been him and Mike Milligan, right? So, uh, and we also lose one of the Kitchen Brothers, yeah, which I was super surprised about. And Hansi just takes him out from behind by cutting oh, his throat. So good, so cold, dude. So cold. And that moment when um, Joe, yes, Joe walks up to the car and just sees Hansi there, yeah, and just you know he's dead. Oh yeah, you know he's dead. You don't need to see his head in a box. You know but, that, but he's you dead. do. Oh, you do. You do. Oh, but of course we get to, and that's a nice moment. Now, I, maybe I'm skipping ahead. We'll 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 come back because there's a lot okay. with Mike Milligan as well to talk about because we learn a little bit more about him in yeah. these episodes as well and his his backstory. I did find it interesting that Hanzi knocked the other kitchen brother out but didn't kill him. Yeah, but that was so he could carry the head back. That's what I'm. My, that's my guess. Is he needed one person to survive that whole thing, 
And so he decided to go sure. with a kitchen brother, which is... I wouldn't have done that. Because, I would have made it like... Well, because you know the other twin is now going to be real angry. And yeah. real particularly bitter. Yeah, that was that's a cold move. I would have just chosen like one of the other guys. I, you know, you got to kill Joe, but you you could have like chosen anyone there. Just any of the Patsies. But we didn't know the Patsies, so we knew right. the Kitchen Brothers. So that's... Why it was kind of perfect. So it's going to be, it's going to look so, uh, the frame will look very lopsided, I think, I for the rest of the season when you have Mike Milligan and only one kitchen. Actually, not to jump too far ahead, but we do see a retaliatory effort on the part of Kansas City in episode six, but we'll we get do. there. Yeah. We will get there. I do have a question, and I should have researched this. Is the Kitchen Brothers, are they the played by the same guy? Or I'm, are they actual twins? I'm not sure. To Actually, be honest. I thought they were twins, but then after one of them got killed, I was like, they might be played by the same guy. And this might be just to cut down a little bit on effects budget and the amount of work that actor <laughs> yeah. has to do. Yeah, they're Possibly. like, okay, we have a twin situation, but it'll it'll get resolved. We so. will we will look that up. Uh, internet, if anyone on the internet happens to be listening and you yeah. want to uh, you want to Google that up for us, just look on IMDb. How many <laughs> just look how it. many Kitchen Brother actors are there? Right. Um. So. While all this is going on, uh, I believe it is at Dodd's behest that uh, his name is Charlie, Bear's son, yeah. is dispatched alongside a fellow named Virgil to go and deal with Ed. And again, um, at, at the sake of oh, being, oh, for the sake, uh, at risk of being overly redundant, um, Dodd is, a dick. Uh, he's a dick. He's Dodd a dick. He's, not only is Charlie a kid, a 17-year-old boy, he has a, he's physically handicapped, right. and, but more importantly than that, he does not have the stomach for this type of work. Here's the thing, Dodd hates women. That's his, <laughs> that's his thing. What he really wants is a, uh, he really just wants a son. And because he doesn't have a son, he's choosing to go with his nephew, which is the closest thing he could get to a son. Right. Even though his nephew has no interest into into actually being any like of the any of the strong side. Actually, he does want to be kind of the manly side of the equation. Well, he, he wants like, to be able to step up the way his father and his uncle and yeah. grandfather have, but that's not who he is. No. And I think he realizes pretty quickly that that's not. Who he is, right? Because he right. goes, he goes into the butcher shop, and Virgil waits in the car. And I believe Virgil says to him just before he goes in, "Don't leave any witnesses." Yeah. And he goes in, and he has this brief, uh, that brief conversation with Noreen. Noreen. Yeah. And, and they basically have chemistry at yeah. that moment. I kind of became like, "Is this going to be a love story?" All of a sudden. But you see, and I think even before he sees Ed, yeah, I think he realizes I'd have to kill her. Too. Yes. That's really why he doesn't go through with it. He doesn't want to kill her. And so that's why he just gets some meat. He comes, he comes out with meat that he's purchased. Yeah. He just buys some meat. So when he does come back later, that's why he's surprised when Noreen's there. But I'm skipping ahead. Yeah, but we can, we can touch on that because it's going to lead us into just about everything that happens right. with with Ed later. The big, weird, Barton Finky moment. Yes. That was very much a nod to Barton Fink, which was kind of nice. That was the vibe that I got as well, where yeah. where Charlie goes in, and he, I don't think he would have pulled that trigger anyway, but he walks in and he's ready to shoot Ed right. cold with his silenced pistol, and Noreen sees it, and I think that temporarily... He panics. Yeah, and it distracts him, he panics, right. and Ed's able to knock the gun out of his hand, and then in comes Virgil, yeah, probably assuming correctly that Charlie was not up to this task. 
And as soon as you heard a big, like, you know, uh, uh, grease fire sure. erupt, I think he was like, oh, okay, I should probably step in now. Right. It's probably time to step in. Now there's this heat coming from the door and just burst it down. By the way, Ed, being pretty badass at that moment, takes Virgil out with a yeah. with a big meat cleaver. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he's just watching. You have that sad moment even before he goes back um, to Peggy where you see him just seeing his entire dream just go up into literal smoke. Yep. And just everything burn. And it's just because he went down this path. Yeah. So this was the tragedy that was, you know, for sure going to happen to Ed, if not more tragedy down the line. Well, And that's that's a, a perfect example of what I was saying uh, at the top of the show about how this these couple of episodes so subverted almost every expectation that I had. Right. Not just as far as I didn't realize we were going to start seeing top mafia enforcers getting offed quite so quickly. Right. But also, uh, one of the predictions that I made was that Ed, given this time frame to get money to buy the butcher shop was going to be forced into a position to do something potentially dumb, dangerous. Yeah, I remember you. you saying that. And that actually surprised me. I didn't foresee that happening. I didn't think Ed was going to do something stupid. I thought he might have been killed before he did something stupid. Sure. I thought it was something like that was going to happen. I could see Peggy doing something stupid. Sure. So I sure. thought maybe that was going to happen. I just didn't think... There would be a shootout. There would be the, hey, everyone knows. There would be, like, cops showing up to the Blomquist door. Right. By this point. I thought Which that does would be... end up happening. Yeah. Yeah, and all this, because what, so, after the big shootout, he realizes that Peggy's in danger. So yes. he goes, like, running to Peggy's side. And, and says, now we have to go. Yeah, and that's that gift of the Magi moment where it's like, now we have to go, but I, I sold the car for you. Right. And it's, yeah, it's a great moment. And I think this was actually my favorite episode of the of the show so far. Was Five? the Gift of the Magi episode because it had like it had these great moments. It had like really funny moments too. It had the Bruce Campbell, and it also had these like intense, just you know, dramatic scenes and then action scenes. And it had it had more than a lot of the other episodes had. And it managed to take every arc, and it's fitting as it, it was the midpoint of the season. It took every arc of every faction and every character within those factions and completely turned them on their axes. Right, yeah. In in an incredibly mind-blowing way. Yeah, it was great. So all of this stuff's going on, and then we continue these threads with Mike Milligan and Simone. Oh, right, yeah. Who is caught in this awful position. Now, granted, she's at least somewhat responsible for the predicament that she's currently in. Right. I, I love how you have this moment with Simone right before... Uh, the the big like you know shootout in the forest just happened yeah so you know that the Gerhards are on the offensive and they're they're attacking so you see her run to her car and get into the car now they could have done a shot where she just shows up at the hotel but it's important that they had that moment where she's just driving and listening to music and smoking a blunt and then just kind of like chilling and because you could tell that she just doesn't know. At all what she's in the middle of. Right. She just thinks she's being a rebellious teenager. Sure. She doesn't have at all any sense that that this is, like, in the middle of war, that lives are on the, uh, on the line, anything like that, until she shows up to the actual hotel. And I think, it, yeah, it is that scene between her and Mike where I think for the first time it truly becomes clear to her what type of situation that she's gotten herself yeah. into. 
Yeah, and there's this nice little moment where she tries to do kind of a power play by being like she realizes, uh-oh, uh, I didn't know about this attack. I'm going to grab your crotch <laughs> to be kind of like, this is my power play, to be like, you still like me, right? I'm still... I'm I'm still here to sex you up. I'm still there. And he just, Mike just, like, doesn't pay attention to it. And then it reverses when she backs up and hits a kitchen brother. Yep. After seeing, like, uh, Joe's head in a box. Yeah. Yeah. And backs up and hits it. And I just want to, like, touch upon this. And then he goes for this real creepy, like, crotch grab thing. Yeah. Which is just like, this is how you do a real creepy crotch grab power move just like <laughs> like because she came in and tried to do something little and it's like no let me let me show you how it's done right and oof, oof. while while in an incredibly intimidating fashion essentially telling her if you want to be taken seriously like you're playing at being serious but you're not a serious person yeah and making it clear to her possibly for the first time because they've been carrying on let's call it a let's call it a dalliance They've been Italians? they've been carrying on Ooh, a dalliance, if a you dalliance. will, very scandalous. But um, <laughs> it sounds somewhat like <laughs> less than an affair. It's like it's not quite an affair. It's a dalliance. It is quite possibly the most the most innocent word for this this situation that they're in. This this very sordid, seedy situation that their they're in. Their genitals were touching. They, is what they we're were. Trying. Yes. Indeed, mm. they were. Mm, internet. The internet mm. maybe is not prepared for such conversations. <laughs> Sorry, the internet <laughs> is not ready for genitals touching. They definitely don't have many websites uh, dedicated yeah. just to that. I think, I think, we're, I think we're a good uh, 25 years from the culture on the internet being prepared okay, for such, okay. such uh, sordid, filthy, yeah. etc. That's why they like to say, when it comes to the internet, leave room for the Holy Ghost. Oh, That's dear. what they always say. <laughs> In your in your browser somewhere, yeah, but yeah. they've been they've been carrying on this this relationship, and now I think it becomes very clear to Simone in more ways than one just what type of man Mike Milligan right. is, and he we get a little bit of backstory about Mike, which I find fascinating. Which mm-hmm. he essentially explains why he is this. Regardless of the chaos going on around him, the the stakes are literally life and death. He remains. He's always smiling. He's yeah. always he's always optimistic. And we find out that it is it is it was his way of rebelling against his mother, who was such a dark and dour person. If I'm not mistaken, he actually says his mother made them eat in the dark, right? Because yeah. she was that morose of yeah. a person. I love the line, she always found a cloud and a silver lining. Yes, exactly. That was, that was such a great line. He has some of the best lines in the entire show, because he's like definitely the smartest character. And you also get this great moment after he kind of shocks uh, Simone by showing uh, Joe's head in the box. Bulo's severed head, yeah. Yeah, he has, there's this nice moment that kind of um, mirrors the tenderness they had uh, back in, like I think, episode two where they were talking about each other's hair and they touched each other's hair yeah. to talk about, like, oh, I do this for moisturizer. And this nice little humanizing moment between two mafia monsters. And right, like, we we see that it's Joe's head and his hair, and he just touches Joe's hair just a little bit. Yeah. And it's a nice little, like, it shows that he really liked Joe. <laughs> and it also it, it makes you remember that nice little tender scene that happened in previous episode which was a beautiful moment it, it was and he he admits too that and we've really never seen we've seen mike milligan go as cold as he needs to go yeah but we've never really seen a crack in the optimist 
of, that is Mike Milligan, even when he has to put on his game face and stare somebody down, like when he stared down Hank and I believe episode two right. when they got pulled over. Um, but he admits this type of thing, and he does so sardonically, but it's this type of thing that shakes his optimism. And that's when he really, he turns on Simone in a way that she clearly was not expecting and mm-hmm. puts her in a position where he doesn't openly say, or I'm going to kill you. Right. But it's a pretty strong implication that if you don't inform on your family for me, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah. And he also, like, he also kind of just keeps her in his pocket. Yep. Which was important for what happens in the next episode. Right. But can we move on to the next one? Yes. And the only other Did thing I want to touch on, there is a, uh, the only UFO, oh, the UFO thing, thing that I found in episode five right, was yeah. in Molly's drawing, drawing, the crayon drawing, where yeah. I think maybe she was going for the sun, but... Yeah, but it implies that maybe she was actually... See, she saw a UFO. Now, I can't... I can't figure out... What the thematic meaning behind any of the UFO stuff is? I have we have so we've talked about it a little bit. We'll probably talk about it more in predictions. Sure, coming up. But like it just it keeps it keeps appearing, and I can't figure out quite what it is. So I'm really hoping in the show they really bring it together at the end. Yeah, that there's some moment now. There's too many hints to make it just be a weird thing that they did in the beginning of the show. There has to be a moment at the end that kind of brings all of the UFO stuff together and makes sense for some thematic reason. I think it's something to do with just not knowing what's out there, not knowing what this new world is. It's feeling like a new world after Vietnam. Sure. It's feeling like uh, there's a lot of unknowns and people need a hero to come in. So maybe the alien represents the hero or maybe the aliens represent just that feeling of the unknown. So it's something like that. I don't need it to actually have a plot reason. I just need it to have a thematic reason. When you do see that nobody, even the people that seem to be aware of whatever it is that they are, don't seem afraid. Um, even yeah. the the motorist that Lou talks to a couple episodes back, who was going on about it, doesn't seem panicked necessarily. That's true. He just seems assertive in his yeah. assumption that they're coming. And Hansi just seemed to be like, "Oh, oh I, yeah. I lost time. Yeah. Oh, that's a thing that it's happens." The alien hour is fine. Yeah, it's the alien hour. Yeah, and like I would think Molly, being a child, if this was something she was petrified about, her parents would have heard about it by now. She also wouldn't draw it like the sun, right? Sure, like like this. Yes, like this yeah. beacon of warmth, and everybody in the picture smiling. Nobody's yeah, afraid. It didn't seem like oh, it's it'll be weird if there's the through line. As it turns out, Molly was abducted. <laughs> Or like Molly has been an alien the whole time. I'd be surprised. That That'd would be, be the uh, not insignificant retconning of season one. Yeah. But then maybe we could loop back around in season three, tie that up. Molly gives right, birth right, right. to a space baby. Uh, maybe season three is going to take place. No, that doesn't make sense. It can't take place in Roswell. That doesn't make any sense. That's a little little it's far a little removed far from cargo. From yeah. well, well, oh dear, we will okay. we will see. So, but that but that and I I bring that up too because unless I missed it, I didn't see a uh, an overt UFO reference in episode six. No, I don't think so. I don't. Not that I noticed. It happens like every other episode. Sure, where there's a like very every, glaring one. Yeah, every once in a while, there's a little one that happens. And then keeps moving. And you have Carl, which is enough of a UFO like reference. I feel yeah, Carl is I feel like Carl's gonna get abducted. I feel like something's gonna happen with Carl and the UFO that's gonna bring it all together. Because (laughs) 
Carl does seem like the type of person that would see a UFO. Sure. So maybe that's where it's going with this. So going moving into episode six, you said yourself at the top of the episode you referenced Assault on Precinct 13. Right, yeah. My first thought uh, – when I realized what the episode was, my head immediately went to Rio Bravo, that Howard Hawks movie, mm-hmm. which Assault on Precinct 13 is, for all intents and purposes, a loose remake yeah, of. Yeah, this made me realize how much of a Western Fargo is. Yes. Because it was very much a Western-like episode. And, like, it, the whole story is kind of Western-y. A little bit. Because you have this these these groups, you have a lone sheriff, or, like, a, a group of lone sheriffs that are just trying to root out the bad guys and kind of save the the regular townsfolk. And it takes place in basically the West, Midwest, but it's the West. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's sure. West of New it's, York. It's west, yeah, it's West of a lot of yeah. places. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is both both uh, uh, Rio Bravo and Assault on Precinct 13 after it deal with a group of outlaws uh, threatening to and then eventually attempting to lay siege to uh, a jail or a small town to get one of their own out of custody. Right. And we see that repeated here. In this case, it's Bear and a bunch of Gerhardt enforcers coming to the jail, A, to get Charlie back, mm-hmm. B, to kill Ed. Yeah, they're not quite sure if Ed's there, though, because there's two parties that go out where one is after is after the kid, and then the other party goes to the Blomquist house. house. Which also is a problem in the show. And wonderful opening to this episode as well, as we hear Mike Milligan reciting a good chunk of Jabberwocky. I think it's the entire Jabberwocky Is it poem. the entire thing? It's not a very long poem. That's true. Yeah, and that's that's a nice moment because that's also that's also why I mentioned that I think that Rhinoceros is more of a uh, nod towards the absurdist. The absurdism. Yeah, because Jabberwocky is in itself a very absurd poem because it's just about most of the words don't make sense most of the words aren't real they actually some of the words actually became real after jabberwock it's like they passed into more more generally just because of the the poem was out there but the story of the jabberwock is very simple it's just uh one hero fighting what could be a dragon some sort of monster the jabberwock yeah snickersnack takes its head, goes glumping back. You know, yeah. so it's it's just a simple story told in a very, very absurd way, which is Fargo. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it just kind of mirrors the actual telling of the story and the actual, like, uh, series itself, rather than what uh, Mike is doing specifically, which is kind of interesting. He kind of, like, mirrors the entire story. Sure. And it, but it's also like a call to arms because it happens at a moment when Simone gives him a call, lets him know that all the guys have left the compound and are now out to uh, to either pick up their their uh, Gerhardt or to kill Ed. Right. While at the same time, it's what she doesn't realize is, and what I actually didn't realize. This was actually a surprise to me. Did you catch this? Did you think that like? Oh, now he knows that the compound's open and that it, only the women and children are left? I was about to ask you if you thought that Simone had any clue what was going to happen. Because my assumption, they talked specifically, Simone yeah. and Mike Milligan, about, and I just, I could call him Mike, but saying Mike Milligan is just so much yeah, fun. Yeah, it's just, it's a... It's um, a the two of them talked specifically about killing Dodd. Yeah, I think they, I think Simone is thinking that he's going to go after Dodd. And so did I, actually. I didn't really think about it too much. I thought, like, oh... 
this will be an opportunity to maybe get Dodd alone or to go out and intercept them or try to get to Ed before them or something. I didn't quite get that this meant that the compound was open. And so you, it surprised me when he showed up. You you also mentioned that that surprisingly tender moment where he, he touches Bulo's head's hair yeah. in the box. And you, you do get the impression that, yes, they had their professional relationship, but... In as much as Mike Milligan cares about anybody, he seemed to like Joe. Yeah. And the Kitchen Brothers are his right and left hand men. Yeah. And he lost one of the Kitchen Brothers and Bulo. So for him, I think this is as personal as it gets yes. for Mike Milligan. So it does make sense in a way that he would then turn it around and hit the Gerhards, quite literally where they live, yeah. in a very, very personal way. Yeah. But I didn't see that coming either. Yeah, it makes me wonder um, who's going to get out of that compound alive. Yeah, so we have this moment uh, right before this this siege begins of Floyd and Simone in the kitchen. And Floyd asks Simone, essentially, are you, literally, are you with us? Right. And she means the family. And do you do you think Floyd suspects anything, or is it just you're a bit of a flake and a rebellious kid, and where are you going to come down? I think she suspects. She's like the two smartest people in this whole show are Mike Milligan and Floyd because they kind of they're the ones that are trying to Floyd's just trying to keep the family together and just trying to like keep the home front and Mike Milligan's you know manipulating things on the outside but Floyd is like I think she's able to see through that stuff she knows that she might be betraying them in some way I don't think she knows exactly that he she's going off and sleeping with Smushing uh, genitals together with smushing, smushing. Mm. That's the uh, clinical that's, that's term. Like equal, that's a medical term. That's equal parts adorable and repulsive. Yeah, that's right. what I go for. That's uh, <laughs> that's my brand. <laughs> uh, so, like, I don't think she knows exactly what's going on, but like, she gets a sense that she is a very weak chain. Yes. So, and could easily go off in the separate direction, especially seeing what Dodd, how Dodd treats her. Absolutely, which is the worst. And it's it's before this happens, uh, as Dodd is on his way out, he literally in a he he dresses it up by asking asking his daughter, Do you know what a whore's life is? But he's literally yeah. calling his daughter a whore. Yeah. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Dodd's a dick. He's a dick. He's a dick. He's a dick. He's such a dick. Someone should cattle prod him. Oh, that is oh, what I think. Oh, we will. I think it'd especially be great if it was a woman. Oh, oh the, and the 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 symbolism at, at yeah. play there is out, and okay, let's you know what? Yes, okay. let's get to that. So, do we know? Do we know at this point who survived the siege on the Gerhardt compound we and don't. who didn't? We do not. That's where it ends. Is just the siege happens. The uh, the whole house gets like torn up. I'd be surprised if uh, if Papa Gerhardt like survives because he's on like the porch, right? That's a good, and by the way, hats off to Michael Hogan for being in almost every episode so far and yeah. just sitting in the chair just looking sitting. around. Great, it's um, two wonderful stroke acting. It's perfect. Great stroke acting. Okay, so the rest of the Gerhards are uh, they're. Either at the police station or they're at the Blomquist house. So let's yeah. talk about the Blomquist. Let's talk house. about the Blomquist. Okay. So Hank is there, right? Is that his name? Yes. Hank shows up. Okay. And he's he's finally talking. He, he has this conversation one on one with Peggy, and I love that he listens to everything that that Peggy says. And he asks, "You're a little touched, aren't you?" Yeah. And Peggy doesn't quite know what he's talking about, but he he's trying to figure out why, what the reasoning is for when, because now everybody knows that. 
Rye was hit with their car. Yeah. That's what happened. Um, why, why you just came home? Why didn't you... Peggy has a great scene here where she just really lays out what her thinking has been, where she's coming from, the idea that when something so absurd happens, you act in an absurd manner. Yes. Because... Uh, these things don't happen in a vacuum, is yeah, what you said. Yeah, they don't happen in a vacuum. You make choices as, as if you make a choice in a dream. Yes. Which is perfect. And that's... And it, it really makes... It humanizes her. And the, the last... These two episodes have been very humanizing for Peggy. Because she's... Once, she did something that wasn't selfish... In one episode. And then this one, she actually identifies that she does have issues. Oh, uh, yeah. And is addressing them in a lot of ways. Um, I actually heard that in an interview with uh, Kirsten Dunst. She talked about how there was a scene that was cut from one of the second episodes early on. Where it was actually a flashback to right before Vietnam happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, Peggy had a fiancé who wasn't Ed. But when the fiancé went... To uh, Vietnam, he turned to Ed. They were at a butcher shop. The scene takes place in the butcher shop where the fiancé says, hey, if anything happens, you watch out for her, okay? And then walks off, which is a nice... You're blowing my mind right now. Yeah, it's like, it's interesting that I understood why they cut it out because I think it's almost unneeded. But it's it maybe an, puts too fine a point on it, but it yeah. does it does color that relationship. It it makes it even sadder. Yeah, it, it it enforces the idea that Peggy is someone who could one just be handed off to someone else. Yeah, that she's she's dealing with the fact of being um, uh, in a very misogynist society and trying to find her own way, but and is not very sure how just like to find that, and also Ed's. Um, kind of protectiveness over her makes sense now sure. too because it's he's the one that kind of he was know, given a charge her. essentially yeah to... he was given a charge so like uh, but Peggy Peggy still is really still trying to figure out how she's going to get out how she's going to escape and you see actually um, in previous episode you saw just the stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of of uh, travel magazines yeah. and uh, beauty magazines. I knew they were travel magazines. I didn't realize they were beauty magazines. Where, you know, she's obsessing over how to get out of uh, town, how to get out of this, like... And they this... have done such a wonderful job. And Kirsten Dunst, I think, has played this so excellently over the course of the season so far, peeling back very gradually layers of Peggy to reveal yeah. just how deep her unhappiness runs. Yeah. And it's so very tragic. Yeah, but at the same time, it's also kind of becoming a love story between her and Ed. They're kind of getting closer. It, it I mean, took, it took her hitting Rye Gerhardt with her car, but yeah, because well, as these layers come out um, of her character that we see, it, they also like Ed sees it too. So are these moments like uh, in in the previous episode? It, you 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 know, they had this honest moment where they said we have to leave. Yeah, that that gift of the Magi episode was where their love kind of actually like starts to hit. Yeah, and where you actually think actually they could make it. Too bad one of them's probably going to be in jail. And they might both not Maybe make it out die. of this alive. Yeah. And, you know, she's obsessed with getting to her convention. Sure. Uh, uh, which and she still is. Life Spring. Which um, I want to talk about in predictions. Because yes. I, I, have... I I think I know what you're going to predict as pertains to that. But, yes, we yeah. will we'll okay. hit that we'll for sure. We'll hit that later. So um, I think something that you were you were starting to get at, too, is especially like she's got, for example, all these travel magazines. And, and this decision that she made, maybe without being 
fully conscious of that's of that being the reason she was making the decision at the time. But she she says in a roundabout way, or certainly this was my reading of it, this decision not going to the police but handling the rye situation the way that she and then Ed did yeah. forces them to make a drastic change, forces them to totally uh, uh, uproot their lives and do something completely different. Yes, yeah. Which, again, just to me speaks to how deeply unhappy Peggy is that's very true, and I think unhappy. I think everyone's. I think Ed's even a little unhappy. Oh, sure. Himself. So, what happens right now? Let's focus on that because we get Dodd showing up at the door, and Hank, who is there, Hank. Did you think Hank was going to die? Because I really thought he was going to die. So I thought he was, but I've been thinking that all season, and now I'm starting to think maybe he won't. If only because, like, my my fear from him for him sprang from. Look, at, there was a sheriff in season one. Yeah. He didn't last very long. But maybe now, because of that, because maybe some people will expect that, that a similar fate will befall Hank, they're going to keep him around a little bit a little bit longer. Yeah. I assumed for a minute or two, though, that he was done for, especially when he's talking to Dodd. And by the way, he's got this wonderful line where, where Dodd asks if Hank thinks he's stupid. And Hank replies, son, I could fill a steamer trunk with the amount of stupid I think you are. Yeah, that's great. Um, he tells me, no, Ed's not here. And you have this amazing split screen that is used a couple of times. It's been used throughout the season, but it's used yeah. to amazing effect in this episode where you see Hansi creeping through and around the house. And he comes – and this this was the moment where I truly feared for Hank. But yeah. he comes around and – Surprisingly, to me, instead of killing Hank, just knocks him out with the butt of his rifle. Well, it's smarter to knock out a cop than to actually kill a cop. It brings a lot more heat than killing a butcher, for yeah. sure. Yeah. So they knock they knock him out, and then, uh, oh, before this, he tells Peggy to go hide somewhere in the basement, somewhere in the attic, wherever there is where she can hide. And you see the Blumquist basement. Yeah, and the Blumquist, we saw it before in the previous, maybe in the Gift of Magi episode, I forget where. But you see these stacks and stacks, stacks. of hoarded magazines that She's create, a hoarder. it creates this, this, like, this minotaur maze almost. Yeah. That gives Peggy an advantage. Yeah, so all of her dreams actually uh, saves her life. <laughs> in a way, yeah. Yeah. She's able to hide in the basement, and then, you know, she's, she, she knocks one guy out, I think basically kills him with the sink. And then um, Dodd goes after her, and then she's able to corner him and cattle prod him. Gets him with the gets him hard with the cattle prod. So there's a couple of questions that happen at this thing because Hank's knocked out, and then he um, he wakes up later to to go to the precinct. So where we're left with what's happening at the Blomquist uh, house is we don't know what's the deal with Dodd. We don't know if Dodd is alive or if he was cattle prodded to death. I'm right. guessing he's still alive, maybe tied up or something. Sure. I feel like she'll have a hard time killing him. Um, and two, we don't really know what her situation is. It's the one kind of like... Uh, there's the one problem that's, uh, that I've come across, and I've, a lot of critics, have, as I've been reading about this episode, have mentioned, is it's a little weird that Hank wakes up and, and just and goes leaves. to the car and leaves. There, are, I, I've read the same, not even criticisms, but pointing out that that seems very out of character it's for very him. out of character. I mean, he does have a head injury. And it does seem, it seems like he's missed a step a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I feel like what might... This might be the one time where they might have a little bit of just like, well, he has a head injury. That's we enough. have to get him over yeah, here we somehow. We just have to get 
the Blomquist alone somehow and get him over here. And then, so we'll see. Maybe they'll have like a nice way to like tie everything up. Sure. And, but I'm on the lookout for it. Because yeah. right now it <laughs> just sure. kind of seemed like a head injury. That's a very it. weirdly out of character moment. Because I feel like you would be like, well, truck's still here. Oh, well, I'll get into the car and right. drive back. Because the truck is still out there. It's not just that, like, I'm sure she's safe. Everyone's not here anymore. Right. You know. But what ends up happening is, yeah, he gets the call on the radio about the siege taking place at the police station. Yeah. And Lou told the dispatcher when radio went, do not come until backup arrives. Right. And Hank, in another moment that seemed to me very cowboyish compared to what we've seen from Hank so far, he essentially says, well, I'm not going to let him die without me. Yeah. And he goes. So I'm going like, what? Um, so, yeah, this this the the Gerhardt men led by Bear are laying siege to the police station and Carl is there uh, is called from his his night of revels with with Sonny and company to come to the jailhouse to act as representation for Ed. Right. When the siege begins, Lou's plan is to say, no, you're no longer Ed's lawyer, you're Charlie's lawyer, and to send him out and negotiate Bear away from the police station. And in this wonderful tour de force Ugh. performance from Carl Weathers, who is petrified, drunk, soiled himself, he manages to talk Bear and the Gerhards down. And it's actually in a very... Very uh, eloquent, ha- eloquent and like, heartfelt. Yeah, and you also get you also right before this, he also like um, gets into the for one, he says "shut up, Sonny," which is nice because that's a nice little like he's definitely he's definitely Walter the Big Lebowski. From Big Lebowski. Yeah. So he's walking into the um, the police. Uh, almost said academy, but you know, station, and just like, and it's just yelling and making this tirade and just like telling everyone to like, calling everyone Nazis, calling everyone this, calling everyone that, and he might, I, maybe that's that's even more of a nice little like nod towards a rhinoceros actually, sure. because he was like, kind of claiming everyone's like, you know. Every, everyone's a Nazi. Everyone's like he was saying boot, boot heels, stuff like that. Yeah, jack boots. Yeah, jack boots. Yeah, and. um and then he like immediately turns and then he even comes back and sits and barricades the door and then sits on it. But you notice later the, jack the door are upon us. Yeah, the the door opens out. So the bench doesn't <laughs> would do not anything, have done anything, yeah. Which is a nice another little nod towards Walter, I think, because it's like when he set up the door in Big Lebowski, he set up a barricade of the door. Yes. And it also opened out. Yes. So he also had that problem. And you know, it's I am I'm excited because I'm about to see Nick Offerman next month in um, Boston doing a Confederacy of Dunces. Oh, I'm he's, jealous. He's Ignatius, yeah. which is like this shows how great he's going to be. It's ideal casting in this like this blowhard, just but eloquent language, just you know, flowing out of him. It's so perfect, and he in, was so perfect. I think he needs an Emmy for this episode. I would agree. In that yeah. in that moment, Carl saves the day. He actually saves the police station. Yeah. You you think for a moment maybe Bear is going to shoot him because Bear really doesn't. You can tell he doesn't know for a minute what he's going to do. But it is literally. I, he's still my son. And Bear, Bear, to his credit, thinks first as a father and not as a gangster, yeah. essentially. And they leave. And the really the last, the last thread from this episode that we have to touch on is that while this is happening, Lou is sneaking Ed out the of back. the police station through the woods where they meet up with Hank, who's, yeah. <laughs> I guess, was on his way. Right there. It was a little convenient. But, uh, yeah, maybe they were on the radio with him. But, you know. uh, but in that moment when they meet, Ed 
takes off. Yeah, because the, he sees that Hank has a giant shiner. You know, he has a giant, like, was obviously attacked. Right. And I think he assumed, like, oh, you're coming from my house. So he just runs towards his house. And Lou's about to start booking it after him. But Hank goes, why? Don't waste your energy. Let's get in the cruiser. We'll you you it. please drive. Because my head is, yeah. it, I'm seeing double. Which is why I did an uncharacteristic choice. Right. Of driving here without checking the house. But we know where he's going. Yeah, so we know where he's why going. wait? Let's get in the car and let's follow him. And yeah. then you see that Hanzi, who was staking out the police station himself, is right on their, on foot, but right on their trail. And it's a yeah. safe assumption that he knows where they're going to. Yeah, so I think everyone's heading to the Blomquist right now. And that's where we end episode six. Yeah. So, it's... Okay. So, so should we talk about predictions? You now? know what? Yeah, real quick, because we got to wrap up pretty soon. Let's right. get into predictions really quickly. And now, you're at your the light show never gets old. It's a Fargo UFO. Okay. So a big thing with this whole season. Yes. The, the first episode starts with a fake movie called Massacre at Sioux Falls. Yes. And also, I, I figured this was where you're going. Lou, in the previous season, uh, older Lou, talked about how whatever he saw the Massacre at Sioux Falls, and that like um, that made him quit. Uh, that made him quit being a policeman. Now, the Massacre at Sioux Falls is an actual event that happened in the 70s. Yes. it's uh, It happened with, like, three or four brothers. Three brothers uh, disguised themselves as policemen and murdered a bunch of campers and uh, raped a woman. And only one 13-year-old girl survived. So it was, like, it was pretty it was pretty horrendous. And, and Sioux Falls is South Dakota, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think. I think it's... Internet, uh, please, feel free to correct me on this if I'm wrong, but I'm un- I believe it is Sioux Falls, South Dakota. The point is, I think the um, this this uh, where Peggy keeps wanting to go... This life spring retreat is at Sioux Falls. Yes. So it's it's heading there. It's going in that direction. So it's... It's maybe it could skip even a couple of years because we know Fargo likes to do that. And yes, that happened in season one. Yeah, that happened in season one. So and now that we're getting into the next, um, the next half of the show, it's it's going closer and closer to Sioux Falls. So I'm really wondering what they're going to do there and sure. how that's going to be and how the real Sioux Falls is going to be involved or or mimicked in a way. Yeah, because that's where the based off a true story is, and they like to mimic kind of real life things that have happened. So. What do you think? I agree with you. I assume that it's building towards some big Sioux Falls style reckoning. Whether right. whether or not it's actually located at Sioux Falls or if they keep alluding to it just to keep the, the close parallel alive. Yeah. What I'm fascinated about watching these two episodes, there was a point at which I went, Oh, okay, the the biggest threat to the Gerhards, I think, is now probably the Gerhards themselves. But now I'm not sure that the Gearhearts are going to be as formidable as they've been built up to be. Right. We uh, with the, uh, Floyd might now retaliate for this attack. Hopefully, she survived because I love Floyd. Um, she, be nice, she'll but... be looking to retaliate because they tried to hit her and they hit her home. So she will be looking for some type of uh, retaliation. But you saw. Dodd receive at least some temporary comeuppance, and you don't when you get the cattle prodded that hard, you don't just walk it off immediately. Right. And you saw, I, I don't think Bear is that guy at all. Bear, you, you saw him humanized in this, this most recent episode in a way that I don't think I was expecting. You saw traces of it. But I don't think when it really comes down to it, Bear is is 
all that villainous compared yeah. to, say, his brother. Yeah, I love that he, when we first met him, he almost looked like the scarier of the two. Yeah. Because he's like a big guy with a beard. But as we've learned more about him, he's the softy. he's a teddy bear. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but but I, I don't know if the Gerhards are going to be all that big a force of destruction going forward. Yeah, they're kind of getting whittled down. I think I think Hansi is still probably going to rack up a few more bodies right. before the season is over, um, as is his intention. But even Hansi has been has been played by Dodd a little bit. Yeah, you know. So I, I that I don't know. Someone, I don't know where I see that going. I was on the Reddit forums for Fargo, by the way, and someone had a great prediction. I don't think this is true. I think this is a stretch, but I thought this was funny um, that the uh, kid who's in jail right now. Yes. Is actually Malvo. Charlie? <laughs> yeah. He becomes Malvo. His, his hand got better. His hand he... got better after his family gets destroyed, and his hand got better, and he became, like, a serial killer. Wow. I don't think that's true. I don't either. But, but... I thought it was a nice way. It does make me wonder if there is going to be more ties to the other uh, to the other season or the actual movie itself. Sure. And one one last question that I want to ask you prediction-wise, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Right. I think... This is probably... I don't think we're going to be seeing any more of Bruce Campbell as Ronald Reagan this season. No, I think that's it. I think I think we got a little a little sousant of yeah. Campbell, if you will. And I think it was enough. And I think that, that made the point. Yeah, I think it was enough that it was... It was perfect for the moment, and if they keep bringing Reagan back, it's just like, why is Reagan spending so much time in Fargo? Ronald Reagan is the wacky neighbor now. Yeah, he's just always there, unless he fights some aliens. Exactly. Or he is an alien. Look, I will not let go of Space Reagan. Until this season is over and done with, and it's all behind us, I will hold out hope that Space Reagan will become a reality. Space (laughs) Reagan. That'd be great. So, so yeah, and and like like you said, hopefully hopefully we see some resolution to this this UFO right. angle. Um, but what that will be, I have no could clue. Could be in Sioux Falls. Um, could it's just the, this massive battle where aliens, aliens invade and zapping everybody, and, and Hansi just murks all the aliens, and then Mercs. and then, without the aid of a spacecraft, ascends to the stars. Yeah. <laughs> be one of them perfect <laughs> um we will uh was, uh, submit a spec script to fx yeah, yeah, yeah. to we'll this effect um and uh yeah that's that's gonna do it for episodes five and six we will be back next week where we yeah. will now from now till the end of the season one episode a week we'll be back next week with Can't episode wait. seven uh mr dave child where can people find you on the internet at mr dave child Everywhere. Everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, or DaveChild.com. Everywhere. I, too, am on all of the individual web, internet-y, platformy, talky mm-hmm. things. My handle is at the Lex Michael. That is going to do it for us on the Fargo Season 2 After Show for this week. Thank you guys for tuning in, and we will Thank see you. you next time. From executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV Network. To watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. Buzz you later! The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 